Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome listeners to the next edition of Exploring Mormon Thought. As promised today, we're going to almost start going over the theodicy we've been working towards, which is called the Plan of Atonement Theodicy. And this is the culmination almost of what you've worked towards for the three volumes we've been talking about. But before we get into the particulars of the actual theodicy, today what we're going to actually discuss is kind of the setup for it. Because we need to understand, you know, there's a lot of things that need explaining before we can get into it. So this is kind of the groundwork or the basic worldview almost that sets up for the atonement theodicy. So, and you'll see right off the bat here, so what we're going to start out with, or not even start out with, what we're basically going to be talking about today is God's power. And you did that back in the first volume, but it was kind of more of just basic definition of omnipotence that we can work with. And you maintain that here, but it kind of gets more particular, and we'll see that as we go along. So but to start off, we talk about the nature of God's providence. And I guess for listeners, if you could briefly remind us of what providence is when we're talking about it as far as regards to God. Providence is the way that God interacts with the world to bring about his purposes. The view that we're elucidating here is a view that I've been developing, as you say, for three volumes. And so this is a very nuanced view one that is different than, than God after the universe, where God grows up in a universe that's already formed and has all of its natural laws, and God has no say, really, in its makeup. It's different than the God with the universe view, which is process thought, where God and the universe is kind of are codependent on each other. In this view, all of the organization in the universe is due to God's organizing activity, and God is logically prior to the expression of natural laws. There's a sense in which he's not prior to what the natural laws will be, but he is prior to the expression of, of natural laws in any universe. And so this is the before the universe view, and it's a view that many Mormons, I don't think they see that this is one of the views that is a live option for Mormons. And I think it's very important to elucidate this because it is the view that is expressed in the revelations in, in the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, in the Book of Mormon, and in the Doctrine and Covenants, and interestingly enough, I believe also in the Pearl of Great Price, both the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham, and clearly also in the Lectures on Faith, which were once part of the Doctrine and Covenants and accepted as scripture. So this is a view that would most naturally fall out from what has been accepted as scripture and revelation, and it is the view that I have argued is expressed in the King Follett and Sermon in the Grove, so that when they're properly interpreted, we don't come up with a mistaken understanding of God's relation to the natural world. Now, this is extremely important because it's, what we're doing is explaining how God interacts with the world, and we're going to be explaining the kinds of experiences that we have of evil of what life is about, and particularly what is most important in life, what is most important about what we can accomplish in life, and what God believes is most important. So that's what it's about. Okay, and then, yeah, you'll recognize, I mean, in the other two theodicies, it kind of stops with just defining God's power, because that was the theodicies. Defining God's power is not sufficient, basically, to unilaterally stop evil, and so that was the solution. And whereas in this one, we'll present God's power, but then we'll also need to then present a separate solution. Anyway, you'll see that as it falls out. The reason for that, and we, we need to say it up front, is that God has sufficient power to stop a lot of what we take to be evils that occur, and are in fact genuine evils, even tragedies, but God has reasons within the scope of his purposes for allowing these things to occur and being required within the scope of what he can and cannot control to have this type of uh, plan that would allow these types of evils to occur. And then, just to clarify up front, so when you're saying this model is God before the universe, you're not talking about creation ex nihilo, you're talking about God before the 
organized universe. So there is still unorganized chaos that is coexistent with God eternally. Are you, is that what view you hold? Yeah. I mean, all of the chaos exists before it's organized. I mean, both logically and chronologically. And what we're talking about is the fact that all organization in the universe, to the extent that it exists, is a result of God's concurrent power. And we'll describe that more fully. But if God does not concur with the natural propensities of the natural intelligences, then there would be no natural law. That's a fancy way of saying the expression of natural law depends on God's lending his own power to those things that exist eternally for them to be able to express their law-like properties. I mean, I guess we'll parse that out, but on your view, was there, just to make it clear, is there ever a time when God was not creating? Like, Because I'm trying to imagine, is there an eternity of just nothingness, and then one day God decides to organize things, or has he always been organizing things, and just you're saying logically it's prior rather than actually prior? He has been creating worlds without end eternally on this view. Okay. All right, well, let's jump into the first section here. So, like I said, it's about the nature of God's providence, which means the nature of how God interacts with the world in general. So, I guess to lay out more definitions off the bat, you say, I have adopted a particular view of natural laws that is characteristically Aristotelian in its assumptions about inherent basic power of natural realities. So you talked about it a little bit, but what is the Aristotelian school of thought on natural laws? We discussed it a bit when we were discussing the finitist theodicy. But in a nutshell, the Aristotelian view is this. There are certain realities that when acted upon, have the ability to bring about certain results. So what we're saying is that the result of the natural law is when something is acted upon, it's not in the thing that is acting upon it. So make it very simple. An atom of hydrogen has the capacity to enter into a molecular bond with oxygen to form water because of the electromagnetic forces acting upon the hydrogen. Electromagnetic forces could act upon an atom of, of carbon, but they don't have the natural propensity to create water. They don't have the ability to bond in that way to create water. So carbon atoms don't have the natural propensity to enter into a molecule of H2O to create water. And it's the properties of the eternal realities that make the natural laws possible. And that what natural laws are possible are inherent in the kinds of realities that exist. And so the Aristotelian view is the most natural view to adopt, I think, in a Mormon view that holds that there are eternal realities, and it is the properties of those realities that determine what the nature of reality and the laws of nature will be. Okay. And then, yeah, you, you say, I adopt this view because, it, like you said, it seems to most naturally fall out of Mormon commitments. And the commitments are that, A, the world cleaves into things that act and things that are acted upon. And you recognize that's from Second Nephi, chapter 2. And then, B, the most fundamental realities, or intelligences, have their own basic physical powers to act and to be actuated when moved upon. And when you say basic, you clarify that you mean not further analyzable and cannot be reduced to explanation by more basic levels of existence, meaning like, this is the most basic fundamental thing that builds right, everything most, else. Right. The most fundamental thing in the universe are these natural propensities inherent in the eternal realities. So usually we explain things by, by for instance, if we're going to explain anything that occurs in a biological system, we look at the cells and then we look at what makes up the cells, the parts of the cell, and then we have a chemical explanation that is based upon the chemistry of the parts of the cell, and then we reduce it further to the atomic relations. And now we reduce it even further to the properties of quarks. But ultimately, the explanation stops with the propensities, with the natural propensities. So if we ask our, the question, why is it the hydrogen has the ability to enter into a molecular unity with oxygen when oxygen molecules bond with hydrogen molecules? And the answer is because of the covalent properties of their electrons. And if we ask, well, why do the electrons have those properties? The answer is, well, they just do. That's just what the electromagnetic property is. And the electromagnetic property is just basic. It can't be further analyzed. All right. Well, then that's pretty much as far as you want to go on that particular section. So now, as you would imagine, we need to examine further the nature of intelligences. And Jacob's going to have us go on that. Uh, Dad, on your view, you say that there are two basic types of intelligences. One is personal intelligences, which we'll go in depth in a bit, 
Uh, and but then the second is natural intelligences. So just short so that we can distinguish the two before we dive in. Personal intelligences are those eternal sentient beings who have the ability to enter into loving interpersonal relations, more or less human beings. The ability to enter into loving relationships requires libertarian free will, such that the intelligences can freely choose to accept or reject such relationships. And the natural intelligences, on the other hand, act of a naturalistic causal propensity. So let's go ahead and, and talk about what this naturalistic causal propensity is. So the naturalistic causal propensity is acting as a matter of deterministic certainty. So it's certain that if you have two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen and they enter into a molecular unity, that they, they create water. There's no choice about it. They're not thinking. They're not conscious. They just have this property. That's a naturalistic causal propensity. And so what we're talking about is the fact that there are two types of intelligences. They're intelligences who have the capacity to express natural propensities and to thereby essentially always act in the same way to follow a law. The intelligence is expressed in the law-like behavior that they engage in. They're not like personal intelligences. Personal intelligences, you know, we'll define that a lot more. But what I'm doing is adopting the view of the Pratt's to say that there are these basic intelligences that form every part of reality. And they read that inherent in the book of Abraham and in Joseph Smith's revelations. But it appears that there must be two different types of intelligences because we have one that acts of deterministic necessity, but the personal intelligences do not act of deterministic necessity. And so the basic distinction is simply those that, that act of natural law-like fashion every single time and those that have a greater degree of freedom. You know, there are a lot of different ways to explain why that's the case. It's mostly because of the organization of the natural constituents that form us to be what we are. Just on that note, so what of, of something that seems to be in the middle? So let's say a dog that is very loyal to their owner. Uh, you know, for example, we had Buddy growing up and he was very loyal to you. Is he, would he be considered still a natural intelligence, or where would his type of intelligence fall on this scale? He's not a fully developed personal intelligences, but he's not merely a naturalistic intelligence either. He's a conglomerate of intelligences. Remember when we talked about process thought? Because Buddy has made up a whole, whole lot of cells and a whole lot of naturalistic intelligences went up to make his body. The organization of those intelligences gave rise, so we, we can give a basic hierarchy. You know, rocks have one level of intelligences. They basically hold together, and that's the way that their atoms and the constituent parts hold together. That's the basic expression of that intelligence. So the next thing up, let's say you've got an amoeba. An amoeba has more freedom. It moves around. It has greater organization. But an ant has more intelligence than an amoeba. And, you know, fish have more intelligence than ants, and mammals have more intelligences than fish, and it basically has to do with the complexity of the central nervous system as matters have evolved. These intelligences, when we talk about a spirit body, they also would have, therefore, constituents parts where uh, consciousness emerges as a result of the organization of the constituent parts. So... There's another basic distinction. Naturalistic intelligences, those that act of a naturalistic deterministic propensity, are those that are the basic constituents of whatever exists, okay? So we're talking very basic things like atoms and molecules that act in, in chemical deterministic ways. Then we're talking about more organized beings that are made up of these natural intelligences. And the organized beings have a greater organization, and it's the fullness of the organization that gives rise to their ability to act freely. So the freedom and consciousness are emergent properties of organization of natural intelligences. So this is basically the way that we would explain biological life and why humans have more freedom and, and intelligence than dogs, and dogs have more freedom and intelligence than, than fish, and fish are more intelligent than ants. It's because of the complexity of the central nervous system and, and the way that they're, you know, the parts are combined. So bringing it back to home, though, the two basic types of intelligences, just so we understand the difference between them, that are relevant to this view for us to understand it will be the personal intelligences and the natural intelligences. Yeah, the natural intelligences are those that are constituent parts that act of natural necessity or deterministic necessity. 
and personal intelligences, which are made up of the natural intelligences and do not act of, of a deterministic necessity, but have libertarian free will if they're mature, their brains aren't damaged, and so forth. I mean, you know, sometimes humans don't have free will. And, you know, that's because their central nervous systems and the complexity of the organization is not properly functioning. Okay. What I just wanted to get across there was that, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about these two basic types, but there's, there's different levels in between those two. Right. And there are other issues here. We're not going to get into them, but it's like, okay, if intelligences are eternal, is the organization of an intelligence eternal as well? Because if an intelligence essentially has a mind, but a mind is the result of an organizational unity of natural intelligences, then it seems like at some point they would have had to have been organized. And the answer is, no, that's not quite the case. Let's say that, for instance, an intelligence is more like a magnetic field than a bunch of particles together. And so that could have existed eternally. And it can exist independently of any particular corporeal body that initially gives rise to it, that kind of thing. So there are a lot of different ways that we can look at this, but what we're saying is that the divide between natural intelligences and personal intelligences has to do with, with free will. The secondary properties have to do with levels of organization. So those are the way that we're looking at intelligences, and they're both well-grounded in Joseph Smith's thought and in the development by prior Mormon thinkers. All right. Uh, well, let's go ahead and dive uh, deeper into that with the personal intelligences and uh We'll jump back over to Corey for that. Uh, you say, personal intelligence says, Joseph Smith taught that the most essential part of humans, the mind, the soul, spirit, or intelligence, is uncreated. Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can it be. And in Joseph Smith's thought, the term intelligence minimally refers to the truth about what constitutes a person's individual essence. Such truth is independent of God's creative power, Thus, the concept of intelligence includes minimally what we would today call individual essences or haseides. Such truth or intelligence has an existence independent of God because it includes what is true of persons given the fact that they are free to act for themselves. Joseph Smith boldly asserted, All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself, as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man. And both quotes are from DNC 93. That's where he first kind of talks about this intelligence, but I don't know. I guess we don't want to digress too much, but from what you were talking about before, I mean, you don't have to have a view on this, I guess. We can just say there's basic intelligences and then there's natural intelligences, but as far as, like, biology goes, you know, there's, like, the great apes. They can learn sign language and can communicate and act upon the world pretty much, and you believe in evolution, right? And so... Do you see this personal intelligence in a way emergent as far as like the nervous system of a mind goes? Or I'm just trying to see, you know, it can't be a hard line of like, you know, dogs are, they never had a soul. They're just things like, do you think animals have souls? No, this is a completely different chapter. It's a mind-body problem. And to make a very, very, very large matter, very, very, very short, intelligence emerges from the organization of basic realities. So that's the complexity of the human brain that is required for the expression of intelligence in a corporeal form. So in this life and, and in this dimension, a fully operational brain is a necessity for being able to have libertarian acting morally responsible intelligence. I mean, it just is. If you get a brain damaged, you'll know what I mean. But what that means is, is that as we grow and our brains develop, before eight years of age generally, we would say that, that kids are not morally responsible. And one of the reasons for that is they just don't have the ability to appreciate the consequences of their acts. The other is they have a hard time controlling their behavior. And so these kinds of properties in this life are emergent and depend upon the material realities about us. But in Mormonism, we also have a material spirit that is organized. The material spirit, I don't think of in terms of like, you know, different parts of matter the way we usually think of it. I think more of it in terms of a force field, like a magnetic field. Now, magnetic fields actually exist. We can show that they exist. And our brains actually generate a magnetic field that is related to consciousness and so forth. It's an analogy, I suppose, but it could be a reality to simply say that when we're talking about organization in this life, 
clearly it's dependent on a functional brain, the kind we have actually in our heads. And apes have a, a good deal of organization, but their the emergence of their intelligence and their intelligence is considerable does not rise to the level of moral accountability. We don't have a practice of holding apes morally accountable for what they do, and for good reason. They don't and can't appreciate really the full scope of their actions. Now, having said that, even dogs can feel bad. I mean, I've seen it in their eyes, but I don't blame a dog morally. I just, I, I know that my dog can learn when it's done something that it knows it shouldn't have done. Sometimes it understands that that's, my, my master doesn't appreciate that. So before we go further, just one other question on that. I'm just trying to get this out of the way up front. So trying to make sure you're not saying this just because I would think people would find this offensive. You're saying if you don't have the mental capacities for being morally accountable, then you basically don't have a spirit or a soul. And I know you're not saying that, but how, how can you get out of that? <laughs> no, clearly I'm not saying that. I believe that animals are, are eternal intelligences and that they all have souls. Well, I meant people that are mentally handicapped, you know. <laughs> Clearly, babies who weren't morally accountable also have intelligences and what we mean by souls. Now, Mormon thought a soul is the combination of a body and a spirit. So soul mean is, a, is a term of art. What you mean is, do they have intelligences, I think? The answer is yes. Joseph Smith believed that animals had intelligences and that was essential. So what's essential, Both there, there is a combination of things, and this gets a large issue of the mind-body problem. It is essential that there be a spirit or intelligence that is united with the brain. And so now the difference between a living brain and, a, and an unliving brain has to do with the way that the brain functions, but also has to do with the presence of a spirit. So, for instance, I would, I would credit near-death experiences where people realize I'm more than just my body. But we're also our bodies. A lot of our identity, kind of material reality that we are, and the relationships in which we exist in this life. In, in any event, it's a very large issue, the mind-body issue. I've written quite a bit on it. I'm an emergentist. What an emergentist believes is that there is something that emerges from the parts and that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, so that what we get is, is different and on a different level of explanation than the basic parts that make it up. And so it's a rejection of what we would call reductionism, or that everything can be explained by reducing it to the lower level of explanation. So, for instance, ultimately everything that we explain about human beings would be explained by the properties of atoms and quarks that don't have any mind or intelligence, and therefore everything's deterministic. And we have no free will, but none of those things have properties of mind either. So there is a lot of explaining to do about how properties of mind could arise from something that has no properties of mind. The, the bottom line is that I'm an emergentist and, and believe that organization gives something greater than would otherwise be explainable by the mere sum of the parts. For our purposes, we'll just continue with this here. So we quote from the King Follett Discourse to talk about intelligences. This is Joseph Smith speaking. He says, we say that God himself is a self-existent being. Now, it's true enough, but who told you that man does not exist in like manner upon the same principles? Man does exist upon the same principles. The mind or the intelligence which man possesses is co-eternal with God himself. There never was a time when there were not spirits, for they are co-eternal with our Father in heaven. God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. Intelligence is eternal and exists upon the self-existence principle. It is a spirit from age to age, and there is no creation about it. And you've pointed out before, Joseph Smith uses intelligence and spirit interchangeably, whether or not, you know, he had worked out exactly if there was a difference or he was hard line on that there was actually just like an actual spirit eternally or whether that had some sort of organization. We don't really know. There's lots of views from he, LDS he leaders. Addressed. He never addressed that distinction. And the distinction would have been foreign to him. I just bring that up because, like I said, this is a lot bigger issue that we don't want to fully get into, but there's a few different views and Mormon thought of what intelligences are and where they come from, for example. Well, I'll just go over the three that I'm aware of. There's this, the Joseph Smith, that the spirit basically is eternally existent and the mind of man exists eternally like that. And then there's the Pratts where I think they thought there was one giant intelligence and that's kind of just like, like this pool of chaos and man came forth from that somehow and was further organized. And then, then there's Brigham Young that said that, you know, we actually had a physical spirit birth 
like actual birth through like a mother to get a spirit body. And then there's, I don't know where this comes from, but there's along those same lines, maybe not exactly birth, but that God did organize our in, you know, these random intelligences into a spirit. That's B.H. Roberts' view. Yeah, then there's that, which is called the tripartite view. I don't know. That's just kind of a brief explanation of the ones I'm aware of. I'm sure there's more, but... If, if you want to learn more about it, get on my website, blakehostler.com. There's an article there called The Idea of Preexistence and the Development of Mormon Thought, where I, ex- I explain the history of the idea and basically distinguish the different views. To clarify, I don't think it's quite clear yet which one of those views, or if any, that this is. Are you saying that the spirit is eternally existing, or you did just say that the spirit was an organization of intelligences? So can you clarify what you mean? No, spirits are eternally existing, but they're also organized. So what I'm saying is that a magnetic field is a complex reality. We don't think of it as having basic particles that are organized to form it. It's a force field, but it's not a simple reality. I mean, it's not, not just a simple atomic particle. And that kind of thing can exist from all eternity. And so when we're thinking about spirits, that's more what I have in mind by analogy. Whatever a spirit is, is something that's eternal, it's uncreated, but that doesn't mean that it, it isn't a complex reality. It still can be a complex reality. All right, we don't need to get into that more. I just think this is kind of an important thing to distinguish up front, just because there's different views in Mormonism, so we have to be clear what we're talking about, otherwise people might have something else in mind. So, And next you say, it's fairly discernible from Joseph Smith's sermons and writings that personal intelligences have the following properties. One, they have delimited and stable personal identity. What does delimited mean? Just another word for stable? It means means very defined. And then two, they have a basic power to be self-determining and autonomous. Three, they are individuated in the sense that one could be more intelligent than the other. You know, from the book of Abraham saying there's lots of intelligences, one above the other, until you get to God and he's the most intelligent of them all. Number four, they have the capacity to advance through further organization and integration with material bodies. Five, their individual enhancement and growth is not possible in the absence of moral opposition and genuine moral temptation. That's part of the plan of salvation we'll get into. And six, by freely entering into a loving relationship with God, it is the nature of personal intelligences that they can grow in light, truth, knowledge, and power until they enjoy the fullness of unity and glory that the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost share. And that's, you know, the whole third volume we went over was about that, so... Next, uh, Jacob is going to talk to us about another potentially big subject, but we'll try to be brief on it, the ontological status of natural laws. You start off by talking about the imminence, which uh, in the previous episode, we're talking about process thought and the imminence. So we we might hear some repeat here, but again, it's just illustrating from, from Joseph Smith's revelations, from his sermons, all this thought is there. So you say, according to Joseph Smith, the most basic elements or constituents of matter are also uncreated and eternal. On the view I present here, all material states are subject to God's power. The light of God is in and through all things and is the power by which they are organized. The light which proceeds from God's presence to fill the immensity of space is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God. These are quotes from scripture. God's light is an imminent power that is infused in all things to organize matter and give life to all things. God's light, imminent in all things, is thus a co-source of natural laws. The thingness of organized material objects depends on God's creative power for that which is governed by law is preserved by law. Moreover, God has given a law unto all things by which they move. God's imminent power is the source of all order in the universe. So what I'm doing here largely is quoting DNC 88, which makes God's power and God's light that is imminent in all things the source of natural law. And I think it's very important to recognize that we have a revelation that talks about the origin of natural law and what it's based upon. And the view that I'm developing is based upon, in large part, this revelation. Let me just sum this up very quickly. That there are natural laws at all, whether there's an expression of natural laws at all, is totally up to God. As DNC 88 states, God gives a law to all things by which they move in their regular patterns of behavior. However, exactly what the natural laws will be or could be is not up to God. So here's the key to this view. 
The constituents of matter and their organizational powers reside in the constituents that God acts upon. However, they cannot express the natural propensities that they have unless God acts upon them. So the constituents, or whether they're organized at all, is due to God's power. But that the constituent parts have the causal powers they do is a result of the particular elements and compounds based upon the properties of the eternal constituents. So what we're talking about here is what we call concurrence. Without God's concurrence, the the eternal natural realities would not express their eternal properties. So it's like turning on a light switch. In order for a natural reality to express its law-like powers, God has to turn on the light switch, and then it can operate. If the light switch is off, everything is chaos. Okay, So light switch on, natural laws, light switch off, everything is chaos. That's the simple way to put this. Okay. And also another analogy that you've used over and over again, the atoms, hydrogen, oxygen, and bonding with water. This concurring power would also be the way that we explain, hey, how does covalent bonding and things like that happen in order to form these atoms where we say, well, it just does, that it just does is the concurring power. Right. So the fact that hydrogen and oxygen have the properties they do is a result of eternal realities. The fact that they can bond is is not up to God, but the fact that they are bonding is because he gave them life. It's almost, I don't know, you're, the way you're talking about it, it almost seems like the universe's natural state, I think you state later, is is one of chaos. We can see entropy is where everything is naturally going to, and so being in unorganized chaos seems to be the natural state of things, and so it would have to have some other force acting on it to not have it be chaos, I suppose. At least on your view, you'd probably need to say this for the the people that probably hold, well, let's start with people that are straight up science-based or just natural, saying that something requires concurrence to exist, I mean... No, they don't require concurrence to exist. They exist. Not, sorry, not, not uh, sorry, that's not what I mean. I mean, the way that they are, like, right now, I'm, I'm saying, because, like, a scientist would be like, well, no, the universe started in a big bang, and because every, all the matter has been outwardly expanding, it went from this state and now is only breaking down to entropy because it is but the things are doing what they're naturally doing because that's their nature so i guess i'm asking can you differentiate between this concept of if something has a natural propensity to do something then it would seem like that's the only explanation you would need why would you need a god in that instance because that's why they put the nail in creation ex nihilo we're not in creation ex nihilo but in God being necessary for the universe because before we didn't know how it started and why everything has the laws and nature that it does. It's like, well, because when our pocket universe was started, these were the laws of physics that were activated or something in our physical universe. And the fact that things are organizing is just because of the natural propensities that they already have. So why? You're missing it. This is not an argument for God's existence, nor would a scientist find God's natural concurrence by looking at the natural realities that they study. It's not something that is discoverable by scientific means. This is not a proof for God's existence. And a scientist is just going to see the natural realities with their natural propensities and nothing more. It requires a revelation from God to know that the reason that they express their natural propensities is because he is lending his concurrent power to them to do so. And it's it's extremely important in the discussion because it's extremely important in the discussion of why the kinds of evils that occur are allowed to occur or must occur, and God can't do anything about it. That's why it's so important in this context. And it just happens to be the case that God revealed through Joseph Smith that this is how it works. And so I'm not saying that a scientist would come up with this view. That would be nonsense. And I'm not using it as a proof of God's existence. It's not a proof of God's existence, and if I were using it that way, it would be a bad argument. So this is not a, an intelligent design argument. I think you're, you're trying to take it for something that it isn't. Um, not necessarily. I'm, I'm just trying to say... I, I don't know, I guess I'm getting lost and you're saying these basic realities have natural propensities, and then you're saying, but they can't express them of natural necessity because God would have to have they his concurring power. They do express them of natural necessity, but they can't do it unless God's light is active in the universe and, and God wills that the natural propensities be expressed. That's why organization is dependent upon God's concurrence. God organizes by allowing the natural propensities to act in the way that they do. He organizes 
God is acting on the universe by allowing the natural universe to organize itself, which is very consistent with what the book of Abraham is saying about creation. But it's not a scientific view that I'm, it's a theological view. Well, no, I'm just saying Mormons generally, like if you read the scriptures in the Bible, you'd think of like God brooding upon the chaotic matter, basically, and then saying like, I need to organize it. And then the, then the matter, then these worlds and everything emerges and comes together from this chaos and suddenly it's forming into worlds. But like, that's not necessarily how it seems to actually happen. It seems that there was, at least as far as we know, a big bang and everything has come out of that. Yeah, I don't think you understand the Big Bang. You're thinking that everything starts out highly organized and then becomes disorganized. The Big Bang is not the most highly or organized it is. It's the lowest entropy you can have, and then everything spins off to entropy. But galaxies are far more organized than anything that existed right immediately after the Big Bang. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into the you know particulars of the science here, but after the Big Bang, you, what you basically had was the breaking of things into determining what natural laws would be, and then breaking symmetries. And when the symmetries got broken, then they began to express what was inherent in the natural laws in that particular universe, because that you know the natural constants that existed were basically chosen in the chaos of the Big Bang. I guess just one other thing that will help clarify kind of what I'm getting at, and then you can read this last paragraph that I think. But we talked at length last time about this process view and how natural realities conditioned God. And so why is that not in effect on your view? It's in effect on this view. This is a hybrid process view where God has it, but he has much greater power because he can turn off the natural expression of natural propensities of basic realities and therefore can stop the natural laws from operating, but he can't determine what the natural laws will be. He can't decide that if you have an atom of oxygen and two of hydrogen and they get together, whether it's going to be water or not, that will be water and it will be water in every universe that he can create. What he can determine is that hydrogen and oxygen won't bond covalently to form a molecule. But he can't determine what the properties of the molecule will be if they bond and express their natural propensities. So this is a hybrid view. It's a very nuanced view of what God's power is in relation to the natural universe. So this comes back into God and his power to organize. So God has the power to organize matter in any way that is possible for the matter to be organized. God has the power because the intelligences that can constitute matter trust God's word unconditionally. Thus God can produce any results that are possible given the potential properties arising from the innumerable permutations of the most basic material constituents. Joseph Smith's writings presuppose that God cannot bring about natural laws that are contrary to the natural capacities of these material states. For example, although logically possible, Joseph Smith asserted that it is impossible for God to create out of nothing the most basic constituents of matter. Further, God could not create matter that is not located in space-time. And to better illustrate this, you give a computer analogy. It's very simple. We have software and hardware, and the laws are the software. They tell us what the hardware will do. So you've got to have material states, and then you've got to have the properties of the material states that tell it how it will act. So the nature of the natural propensities is like the software, the basic matter is like the hardware, and God's power acting upon this is concurring powers like the electricity that allows the computer to go. When I hear analogies of computers, I always am a little bit amused because they tell me all about software and hardware, and they don't realize that you have to have a power source in order to get it to run, which is why I think this is a good analogy, because you can't leave out the power source and have an operating computer. But when I hear analogies of software and hardware, they always leave out the power source, and that's what science does. It leaves out the power source. Well, on that note, we'll go over to God's providential power and knowledge, and Corey will go through that with us. Okay, and then, yeah, the whole first volume was on this, so we'll just be brief as kind of a recap here. So, say, God does not require power to do the following to be maximally powerful. A, he doesn't have to be able to bring about the acts of free agents, and B, to do anything inconsistent with the divine attributes, or C, have the power to alter what has occurred in the past. Further, it must be stressed that the ontological commitments of the atonement theodicy do not simply dissolve the problem of evil as process theology. There is still a need for a theodicy to explain why God allows events to occur that he has sufficient power to prevent. The objection 
that these ontological commitments limit God too much dissolves upon closer examination. Well, remember, the objection and process thought is, well, if God is limited by something more than logical necessities, then he's not really omnipotent. And every one of these is logically based. So, for instance, it's logically impossible for another person to bring about the free acts of any other person. Because in so bringing it about, by definition, it wouldn't be a free act. No person can do anything that's inconsistent with their basic attributes. I have an attribute of being existing in space-time. I couldn't possibly bring it about. But as a person, I don't exist in space-time. God's divine attributes, whatever he does, would have to be consistent with the basic reality of what he is. And nobody has power to alter the past. The past is over. It's done with. And if we altered the past, and what we would be doing is, in a sense, logically impossible, because I would make, be making false what is true. That would violate several basic logical laws. Um, the law of the excluded middle comes to mind immediately. So, just to be clear, though, just because we just, again, filled people with these ideas from process thought, so on this view, do the natural things that God has given power to organize can he have them do anything he wants at any time, or is it somewhat like process thought where he has to use persuasion on these entities that are, as you say, acted upon? Can they be acted upon unilaterally, or do they have to be convinced or something? I don't know. In one sense, they can be acted upon unilaterally. God could turn off the switch at any time, and they would tend toward entropy. He cannot make the natural constituents act in a way that's contrary to their inherent natural propensities. So, for instance, he can't make it so that H2O has the properties of carbon or that it has properties of uranium, has the properties that it has. And so God is limited by the natural laws and by the natural realities that he's dealing with. Nor could he have intelligences that don't have free will. If God obliterated the free will of an, of an intelligence, it would essentially be obliterating the existence of the intelligence because an intelligence is inherently free. That's what it does. If it weren't perfectly active in what it did, it just wouldn't express intelligence and so it would cease to exist. Joseph Smith makes clear that God can't make it so that these eternal intelligences cease to exist. It's not something he has the power to do, even. Okay, and then this will lead into our next section, but I just... Finally, on God's power, so we spent last time discussing a Mormon process theology, and on that view, kind of fell out from the evidences that you were giving that God couldn't unilaterally control the natural constituents of reality, if you will, the intelligences. On that view, for example, if God wanted a world on the process view, then he could use his lure and persuasion to, over billions of years, to get it to the form that would be in line with God's will. And I guess it's still ongoing in that view. But let's say if God had a plan of salvation and he wanted to create humans, he couldn't just have a human automatically appear, God would have to do it through some form of evolution. And, you know, we're obviously reflecting what we know of evolution back on this. So it had to be that way. Can you explain on your view what parts of the limits of process thought are still in place, if any? And if they're not there, why is that? Let me first state that one of the greatest challenges for process thought is explaining how there are constant regularities in the world if creativity is the basic reality. So a lot of people have criticized process thought because there are, in fact, natural regularities in the world. It is the case that water always freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. We don't wait to see how the molecules of water will react and whether they will creatively agree with God to freeze at 32 degrees. It's the case that when two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen form in a molecular bond, they always form water. We don't wait to see if they will creatively do that, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. We have these natural regularities, and process thought has a difficult time explaining why it's always the same except for saying, well, there are some realities that are, are more deterministic and others that are less deterministic, and at the more basic level, they're more deterministic. On this view, I suppose say the same kind of thing, but I actually have a basis for saying it. Process thought just posits that without any real reason except for trying to give an ad hoc explanation for natural laws. The reality is on this view that we have intelligences, and it is the very essence of intelligences to be creative. Remember, we're talking about the constituents of reality responding to God in faith and organizing themselves the way that they do because they believe in God's word. Now, this would have to be an analogy at some level if we're talking about the most basic constituents because nobody believes that atoms have ears and hear what God is saying 
and that they have faith in God in the sense that they decide, oh, God wants me to do this. I think it's a good thing to do, and I'm persuaded that it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. We're speaking by analogy here, if we're, you know, if we're making any sense at all. And on this view, what is retained is at the subatomic level, um, at, at the quantum level, there's a good deal of indeterminacy that can be that can be magnified and expressed in the macro world. Uh, at the most basic level, we have natural realities that don't act of natural uh, deterministic natural propensity. They act of an indeterministic natural propensity. And at the level of more sentient creatures, they also are creative. Human beings have a good deal of freedom and are creative beings. And remember, I've asserted that the mind emerges from the organization of the human body in the central nervous system. And so the mind that we have, the consciousness that we have, is not reducible to the mere material parts of the brain. Any material part of the brain you want to take is not conscious. Matter, per se, is not conscious. I guess you could believe in panpsychism, which maybe is inherent in the notion of intelligences, and just say every part of matter has a certain element of intelligence to it. But we would still say that when this basic intelligence is organized, it expresses a much greater degree of consciousness. So we could say that as well. Panpsychism is the view that down to the smallest constituents, everything has some properties of mind or, or at least elements of mind in it. God's power on this view is a lot like on the process view. God can't have just anything he desires. He can only have what will result from the given realities that he's dealing with. So, for instance, God couldn't have a molecule of H2O and have it express the properties of gold. It will form water, not gold. And God couldn't have it otherwise. The way that things organize will be the result of God's creative power to organize them and that requires the ability of things over time to organize themselves into more complex realities. And I'll simply say that it appears that God chose to allow the natural realities to organize themselves using their natural propensities over time in order to realize the kind of order that he was seeking. That would suggest that it's embodying the light and the intention that he has by giving his light. It's very analogous to the initial aim and the lure of God in process thought. But... God would also have a power that on process thought God does not have. He can basically refuse to give his concurring power at any level of reality, and the natural propensities would not be expressed. They would tend toward chaos. In other words, they would, they would tend toward entropy or greater entropy, and they would dissolve over time. But keep in mind that it's like something that decomposes. When a body decomposes, it doesn't just disappear. And it doesn't fall apart all at once. It de decomposes over time because that's the order of entropy that happens when we don't have the organizing forces of life organizing the body. And that's the way that generally it is. Things decompose and, and, and entropy becomes greater over time, but it takes time. So on this view, it would be consonant to say that it takes time for God to be able to realize his will. But God also has the ability, I've given an analogy, and I think this is an important analogy. Everything in a computer is merely the organization of zeros and ones. And we can create pictures. We can create the, all of the functions of a computer using just zeros and ones and organizing them in a certain way. We can even have, if we have a material reality that's a printer and we have hardware to run it on, now it may take a long time for the printer to be able to be evolved to the point that we actually have a printer that functions. But once we do, we can organize the zeros and ones in a way to create a 3D printer and then I can begin printing things off and having any organization I want. And so as things become more organized, we can increase the speed by which we further organize things. Just the way that, you know, we can, as humans, we can create all kinds of things that apes can't create. And with computers, we can do all kinds of things we couldn't do without them. So things become increasingly fast as the basic constituent elements become available to us. And I would suspect that it's the same for God's power. And that's what's predicted, as, as a matter of fact, on this view. That with organization, it takes initially a great deal of time in order for the constituent parts to organize themselves in a way using their natural propensities. But after a while, with greater organization, greater possibilities arise. And once we get a great deal of organization, then we can create order in great rapidity. And so I think that's the answer that I would give. So evolution would be a natural way for God to create on this view. But God also has an immense power that is not available in process thought so that God has now an organizational power that he didn't have possibly initially because of the greater organization that already exists. And with that greater complexity, he can realize greater complexity with greater speed. Now we want to move on to the next part, which is talking about God's providential knowledge. And again, we 
developed this at length in the first volume, so we'll just give a review here, I guess. So you say, I suggest that God's knowledge is providential in that God can use his knowledge to ensure the realization of his purposes in the following ways. One, God is all-knowing in the sense that for any state of affairs, if that state of affairs is or has been actual, then God knows that state of affairs. And if a state of affairs is possible in the future, then God knows now the present objective probability of that state of affairs, if there is any. So basically, that whole view we went over in the first volume where God knows the probability, like he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, but he knows all that can happen, what all the possible, you know, we use the chess master analogy, he knows all the possible moves and whatever move anyone else makes, he could counter that. You know, not saying the universe is an opponent, but basically whatever happens, he has a plan for it, and he knows that it was possible, so he's not going to be surprised, per se, by anything. I mean, he'll be surprised on what actually occurs, but he can't be surprised and like, I didn't know that was a possibility. He knows it's a possibility, just not that it would actuate. Okay, and then two, God knows now what his purposes are and how he will achieve them. So I guess I kind of inferred that. It's it's inferred in the master chess player analogy. He, He knows all the possible moves that can be made. And he knows what he will do to counter them if they would challenge his purposes for his plan. Okay, and then God knows now how he will respond to whichever contingent state of affairs occurs to ensure the realization of his purposes. I guess that's this is all inferred kind of in that analogy, but I'll read it anyway. God does not know now precisely which contingent possibility will be chosen or become actual. So whatever happens, he's got a plan for it, but he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. But no matter what does happen, he can ensure that his purposes will be achieved. And I think the the point of this is to show that logically the view of open theism uh, regarding God's foreknowledge, that is that he doesn't have absolute foreknowledge of free acts, is nevertheless an adequate view of God's providential relation to the world. That is, God can have a plan and ensure the realization of his plan, even if he doesn't know the future and people have libertarian free will. All right, and then I would agree that God would have to have the kind of power that you described to have this happen, because if, like on process, thought the constituents of reality didn't have to agree with God, then he would not have sufficient power to be able to achieve his will. He could know that there's all sorts of things that would destroy his will, and there's nothing he could do about it on that view, so he could know that. You know, things could go to hell in a handbasket. You have six million Jews being burned alive in, in ovens. And the best he could do is go, oh well. All right, and then you say, The best notion of providence is found in the Book of Mormon, First Nephi chapter 9, verse 6, which says, But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath power unto the fulfilling of all his words. In other words, God's knowledge that he will realize the fulfillment of his plan is assured because of his power to fulfill his words rather than his knowledge of what will occur alone. Now, the last prep for this atonement theodicy is kind of understanding the nature of the challenge of learning love. So, as you stated earlier, when we talked about the nature of intelligences, or whatever you called that, you you were saying that, you know, we couldn't progress further without having some sort of moral learning grounds or something that was kind of inherent in our, whatever our state was. So, In this atonement theodicy, the focus is two things. So first one is loving relationships of fellowship must be freely chosen and thus entail the possibility of rejecting such loving fellowships. Uh, Again, the whole last three volumes you've expressed that this isn't just the relationship with God that we're talking about, but also with one another. Let me express it this way. The plan that Satan presented that he would force everybody to be saved was literally logically impossible. Because salvation consists in entering into a loving relationship, and love must, by its very nature, be freely chosen. We can't have a love that is forced, coerced, caused, or made necessary. It has to be something that's left up to us to choose. And so if you choose a method of forcing love to occur that is inconsistent with love, this is what happens in real relationships when people become controlling and want to force their beloved to act in the way they want the beloved to act. They destroy the love. And so it's the very nature of love that it must be freely chosen, and that means that it also can be freely rejected. And therein lies one of the realities of human existence, and this is just what I call the logic of love. And because love is such a great good, because it is the most valuable thing that we know in human relationships, it must be the case that God leaves us free to choose. And it must be the case that in order to realize what we're after, he couldn't have it otherwise. All right, and we learned to love 
by facing challenges that call us to be deeply morally responsible for each other, face challenges that call for compassion from us and develop our own souls to grow in greater light toward deification. The easy way to say this is that nobody grows inside the comfort zone. All growth takes place outside the comfort zone. It's also another way of saying that a person who has never been a parent won't understand what's being said when we describe the love that a parent has for a child. It's something that you know only through experience. This kind of deep commitment, this kind of deep moral responsibility that we have toward each other, we can pretend that we don't have it. But when we're fully cognizant of the kind of responsibility that we have for each other, it calls to us to serve others and to learn how to serve. And most important, to grow in love so that we can serve people in a way that honors them as persons, honors their purposes for their own lives. And this is the way love also works. It can't be the case that love says, my purposes for you are your purposes. A person who truly loves another person says, whatever your purpose is for your life, I honor your choices. If I see that what you're going to do is engage in self-destructive behavior, if you're my child, I may stop you. But if you're an adult, all I can do is, at my best, try to persuade you that this is a self-destructive behavior and try to avoid it. And it will always be the case, however, that when you form what your purposes for your life are, if you choose the purpose of your life to be saving lives as a medical physician or a doctor, it's not up to me to say, oh, but you know, I'm an accountant and I think you'd make a really good accountant and I really want you to reflect my life. That's not how it works. And you know, these are very basic realities about the nature of love. Okay, and then the last thing you say is it's also essential to grasp the nature of the experiential learning process. So it's often the case that we do not learn from experience the first opportunity that experience affords us to learn a lesson. So in your book you say that life seems to have a way of serving up lessons that if you don't get them the first time, they'll come around again and until you have to get them. Well, let me explain this in terms of a basic difference between this theodicy and the other theodicies. This theodicy views God as working lovingly to fashion a universe that will serve us and that is ordered in such a way that it acts as a universe in which we can learn and that, and that is good for us. In the finitistic universe, the universe is just what it is, and God is working against the universe. It's recalcitrant. It won't embody his will. It's not set up by God to serve us. It just is what it is. In the process view, God is working with the universe to try to bring it to be that kind of a thing, but it just is too recalcitrant to make it that. In this view, the world has been lovingly set up, as I said, to be a place where soul building can occur and where we can work our way toward theosis and deification. It is set up to be a system in which we can learn to love each other in a deeply morally responsible way. And it is ordered in such a way that as we grow, we'll have opportunities to repent. Let me say this. The purpose of life, according to the Book of Mormon, is to allow us a space in which we can repent. That is, by which we can learn from our mistakes. And so if we make a mistake, it's not the end of the day and we don't have to just cash in our chips. We get another chance to learn the lesson to love, and it will come around again for us so that we can have the opportunity to grow, and making a mistake isn't the end of the discussion. Everybody is in process, and nobody is ever a fully finished work. You'll never meet anybody in this life that is already fully done. We're all works in progress, and I think it calls for a good deal of compassion from us when we see each other as works in progress and that it's unfair to hold us in our past so that we never give each other an opportunity to grow beyond where we are. When we see each other as people who are in the process learning from our mistakes, we can't say, I get to hold a grudge against you. We must always leave space for people to repent and change and grow into something different and maybe a better form of what they are. There's also the chance that they can go retrograde. They can, instead of tending toward light, they can tend toward darkness. But that's inherent in the very capacities that we have and in, in the kind of world that God has set up. But the point is, is that God has ordered the world to be what it is. He has ordered it so that it has this capacity for us. Well, when, just, just to clarify, when you're saying ordered, you're not ordered like he told it what to do, like order like an army general, but he ordered it. He brought order out of chaos. Organized. Yeah, he organized it to be what it is. However, also in our individual lives, we'll see God's hand acting in our individual lives so that we see things coming back around to us. Now, it may be that it's just the natural way that the world is, 
there's a natural law that what we send out returns to us, what we sow, we reap, and you know what goes around comes around. It's just the way that it is. The fact that the world has this kind of a characteristic is the result of God's ordering it so that we can learn from our experience and so that we can continue to grow in light until the perfect day. So the goal is to grow in the light, in unity with God, through learning to love. And that's what this very process of atonement is about and what this atonement theodicy is all about. And we'll discuss that more next time. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.